Hey everyone, I'm Issa and I'm with Maddie and Natalie and this is Reeling and today we're going to talk about the show I May Destroy You. And just a heads up, we will be talking at length about topics pertaining to sexual assault and rape. Um, so if any of these topics are very sensitive for you, um, consider clicking out. And there's also going to be heavy spoilers for the entire show as we continue talking about it. I May Destroy You is a phenomenal uh, 12-episode miniseries, each episode 30 minutes long, written, directed by Michaela Cole, and she also stars in it as Arabella Asiedu. I May Destroy You is based off of Michaela Cole's real-life experiences. Um, we follow the journey of her character, Arabella, as she navigates the aftermath of her own sexual assault alongside her two best friends, Terry and Kwame. First of all, if you have not yet seen I May Destroy You, seriously click off of this right now and start watching it because I feel like it has not had enough buzz yet. I know so many people who have not even heard of this show. And I think that's just because of the lack of recognition it's getting at awards shows this season. Yeah, I first heard about it over the summer over quarantine. I had seen a few people I follow on social media like raving about it. And I knew Michaela Cole had written and um, starred in Chewing Gum. And also I had seen her in that episode of Black Mirror with, um, with Jesse Plemons. Um, <laughs> and I was just like, wow, she seems really cool. Everyone's raving about the show. So I decided to give it a watch. And I was just completely stunned by her brilliance um, and just couldn't stop watching. And then I've watched it twice since and just every time notice more and more. Yeah, similar to you, Maddie, I my introduction to I May Destroy You was pretty much just through social media in response to the lack of representation at award shows. Specifically, I think the Golden Globes. Um, there was a lot of conversation surrounding why it was snubbed and like why everyone should watch it, but I never really got around to watching it, I think, until a little bit later than that. But I definitely think it was worth the watch and the wait. I don't think I would have even heard about it had Maddie not introduced it to me. I was not seeing anything about it online and I, none of my friends had mentioned it before Maddie did. Um, and then I watched it for the first time with Maddie. But honestly, like there's so much to unpack in the show that I appreciated it so much more the second time. I think it just like really makes you feel uncomfortable and forces you to think. So I think my first experience was very like, you know, my shoulders were tensed up and I was watching it like super like, I don't know, high stress, but in like an enjoyable way, if that makes any sense. But the second time around, I could more so appreciate Michaela Cole's like genius and like pick apart her specific choices. I can say without reservation that it's the best show I've ever seen. So when I saw that the Golden Globes didn't nominate it, I was infuriated and we can only hope for better at the Emmys because it just deserves the recognition like yes award shows really don't matter um and should not be given like the end-all be-all of what's a good piece of art by any means however if they are the like societal standard for judging good art they should be doing that and in that case i may destroy you deserves to be nominated in every category well said and i think like people do hear about new shows and films through these award shows it's like such a great advertisement <laughs> um, for newer and smaller TV. So like it is doing it a disservice because even if 
we don't agree with the choices made by the globe if they would have recognized i made a story you it would have gotten more viewers and more buzz in general so that's why it's like more so disappointing it's like why is it still like most people that i've spoken to haven't heard of it yeah like kind of adding on to um what you're saying i think also just the subject matter and the way it's portrayed and the amount of detail that michaela cole like put into it is it just doesn't make sense why it's not um given more recognition because i think it's such an important piece of media for people to consume not consume but like really watch and like consider everything that she presents there's so many little things about the show that contribute to the overall like the overall like entire thing of i may destroy you so one of these little details that contributes to the whole is the music and the soundtrack is so carefully curated um first of all all the songs are amazing and so fun to listen to I found the soundtrack on Spotify and have been shuffling that every day. Um, but they also are so intentional and have meaning within the story, like one um, that recurs throughout anytime she's having flashbacks of the night that she was raped in the Ego Death Bar is uh, It's Gonna Rain by Reverend Milton Brunson and the Thompson Community Singers. Um, that song is a gospel song and in a New York Times article the music supervisor of the show Kira Elwes talks about that that song was hard to get the rights to because it's like religious music but it's so meaningful within the show and um, and now I always associate it when I hear it um, to those moments Um, and I think connecting that like the religious music with trauma and also the imagery of it's gonna rain and like Noah's Ark with all the water motif that comes up um, throughout the entire series um, is so interesting. And then there's also a few um, choral moments um, throughout. Just because you mentioned the choral pieces, the one that stands out to me a lot is the one in episode eight after Biagio locks Arabella out of his apartment and she is left on the beach all night. And then suddenly she stands up and we hear this like really intense choral music like kick in as she just walks fully clothed into the ocean. And that moment in general is so surreal. So I think the really like dramatic element of the choral music just like elevates the intensity and the surreality, um, if that's even a word. So I think when I first saw it, I thought it was the strangest choice for that scene. And then the second time I saw it, I was like, absolutely the right choice. The choral music is so powerful and so like haunting. Um, and I remember a couple other times it was used um, right after Kwame goes to the police about his own assault and um, they don't treat him with respect at all and kind of dismiss him um, as being dramatic, basically. Um, there's like a moment of voices at that part and then also um, when Arabella remembers, like when everything comes back to her and I think the second to last episode and she remembers being in the cab with Tariq and with David, um, that's a really big choral piece and just the voices and the, it reminds me of um, the beginning of Us, like I just think it's so, um, choral music is so impactful in creating like tension and like um, uncomfortability within the viewer. Also, it like inevitably brings up the religious themes associated with assault and trauma 
um, and just we feel uncomfortable already surrounding um, sexual themes and sinning. So then to throw in a choral piece and you feel like you're in a grand cathedral, it's like, even if religion isn't a direct theme that Michaela Cole discusses in the show, I think she's sort of inadvertently doing so by including these this soundtrack. And really quick, I wanted to talk about the music supervisor, music supervisor Kiara Elwes, um, in a New York Times article that she did um, talking about um, the choices that were made regarding the music. She really emphasized this idea of not having the music tell you how to feel and having the listener and the, or the audience coming come to their own conclusions about what the scene is making them feel rather than having the music dictate like that you're supposed to be sad at this moment or something. And I found that so impactful because I mean, from the first episode when Tara Wack just started playing, I was just very taken aback because I mean, not in a bad way, but I was like, oh, this is fun. Like Tara Wack is playing. And then she also sang karaoke at the bar and sang truffle butter, which I think was so funny. Um, and just like the, the many different choices of artists too. There's a lot of Janelle Monet and there's a lot of Tara Wack and there's a lot of um, FK Twigs, a lot of different artists that really help encapsulate the what whatever is happening in whatever episode and just helping helping the overall, I don't want to say theme or message, but like kind of there's this overarching idea that you, the audience has to just come to their own conclusions about everything in the show. And this, the music really does help um, further that. I also think it's interesting and definitely shows the intentionality of those choral religious pieces that it's like interspersed with these very contemporary pop and hip hop artists. Um, so it shows that in those moments, it's really, it really like calls the viewer's attention um, because the choral music is sort of timeless, whereas um, these contemporary artists are more current day. One of the main reasons that I think we really chose to speak about I May Destroy You on an episode um, is because nothing is, you know, black or white in the thematic content. She handles some really like intense themes, you know, when it comes to sexual assault, abortion, um, racial injustice, so many things, even deforestation and everything. But she doesn't tell us what to think about any of those things. She presents us like a story um, that is very nuanced. And then she encourages us to think about it with the pieces she's given us. But she's so different. Michaela Cole is so different from other artists in that she doesn't have an agenda. You know, it doesn't feel like she does at least. Um, so I, I don't know if you guys had that same experience, but I was just really shocked and, you know, it made me feel uncomfortable watching it, but in like a good way. Definitely, she's encouraging the audience to think for themselves I feel and like having that responsibility was something I'm not used to while I'm consuming content usually um so it definitely challenged perceptions especially in terms of like who is evil and who's good and like um should it be that black or white no because that's not how real life is um so it was very just realistic in that way and a character that I think really exemplifies that is Zane um, he rapes her, what is categorized as rape in, um, the UK, and then is, um, she exposes him on stage at their summit, 
which that happens in episode five and it is so satisfying um i personally love that moment and her power um and then as terry's filming him as he walks away it's just it's so satisfying but then at the end he under a pen name meets up with her again and they work together and he helps her craft the story that later becomes the show and it's just so strange because the whole time I'm like I hate Zane so much but then she almost forgives him I'm not sure if it's forgiveness again she doesn't tell us but it's really fascinating and she kind of like intentionally makes us empathize with him a bit you know like when we see his mother's face when her son is being exposed for removing a condom without consent like and seeing when when they meet up when he's like I am not able to use my real name in any of my work because no one will buy it um you know he's we see how his life has been ruined and even though we know he deserves to be exposed and that what he did was totally unforgivable Michaela Go Michaela Cole doesn't let us get away with just pinning him as evil and a bad person she like forces us to see that this human life has been ruined and to what degree are we able to forgive him? You know, if he commits to changing and learning and he helps Arabella ultimately finish her book in the story, which is meta and is actually the show that we're watching. Um, but his character is so conflicting. Like, I feel so conflicted about that. Yeah, I feel like all of she... Like you guys have said, I it's just so refreshing to see to watch a show that presents its characters in this way where again, it's not always black and white. We see all of them as a person. We see every like not every single part, but such a huge part of like their lives and experiences and wh what makes them who they are. And yeah, the character of Zane is just so so difficult to unpack just because again, like you guys said, I really wanted to hate him but when he came back in that scene where she meets him at the cafe I was like this cannot be real and then the way it just unfolded was it just leaves me like all of the rest of the show has it left me just really sitting and thinking about how I perceive not only like people in my life but also like people like in shows like this or like just in general he's also just like not your stereotypical rapist and I really like that she chooses this nice guy who is a writer and he's really quiet and shy and a little bit awkward. Um, and she exposes that, you know, rape is not just one thing and an assaulter can look many different ways. So I also, th also think it's really important that she shows that removing a condom without consent is rape. Um, and there are very serious consequences to that. And she does the same with, you know, Kwame's sexual assault. Um, where he wasn't sure if humping was rape or if it was considered assault or, you know, if they had just had consensual sex. It was, she's really exploring the various ways you can be assaulted. And I think it's helpful because we don't learn about this in school. We just mm -hmm. learn that rape is one thing. And so many people go on being assaulted, not realizing that a crime has been done against them and they don't exactly realize why they feel so awful about it because they don't have that education. On that point, it was a really interesting choice I noticed upon watching for the third time that Zane, the first thing he does when they're about to hook up is 
ask if he can kiss her, which I found really interesting because he he's asking her consent for this but then takes off the condom while she's turned around and she doesn't know and then gaslights her and says oh didn't you feel it etc um so to start with him asking for consent was interesting and real because like you said he's such like a nice guy or whatever but he's not really and then i also think it's uh realistic that she ended up working with him it was her choice um in the end but in so many people's lives they have to be around their abuser and it's really upsetting but this show unlike other shows um like demonstrates that reality also i know i mentioned kwame's sexual assault being uncertain he didn't know if it was sexual assault or not but also he had that situation where he took nilifer on a date and slept with nilifer um, without disclosing his um, sexual orientation as, and his intention with wanting to experiment. Um, and that was a really conflicting scene too because Nilifer was clearly fetishizing him as a black man and then also made yeah. extremely homophobic comments after they slept together. So it's kind of villainizing Nilifer and, and we as the audience don't like her. But then Arabella calls out Kwame for sleeping with a woman while withholding important information and kind of um, entering a vulnerable space for her without giving her the information she needed to make that decision in the first place. So that's another situation where Kwame is one of our three leads and he makes a bad decision. So then we are left with, okay, do we forgive him? Was it justified? You know, it's Nilifer cancels him and storms out in the cafe, which is what many of us would do too. But Michaela Cole encourages us to to see the nuance in it. Mm-hmm. Terry as well, like she told Simon to leave while Arabella was about to pass out in the bar and then subsequently was raped. Um, and Arabella doesn't find out about that for a while, but when she does, she doesn't even hesitate, or she does probably internally, and I think we see that throughout that episode, but when they're actually in a space where she could confront her about it. She just thanks her for um, all the effort she's put into her recovery because she did, like, that's all, where all her energy went for months um, was just helping Arabella, um, comforting her, uh, putting her in spaces that affirm her. So um, she's showing us that that, for Arabella at least, was enough and made up for that... um, horrible mistake and she couldn't have known like what it would lead to um these characters are crazy like I'm trying to think about it and even Arabella has these really bad moments like me and Maddie were watching um episode eight where Arabella returns to Italy and visits Biagio and I think my first time watching it I was like how dare Biagio lock her out and like pull a gun on her that's horrible which did he respond dramatically yes But also Arabella literally broke into his apartment after he was not responding to her calls or texts for months. Like, you can't just break into someone's apartment and then just demand that you're staying there indefinitely and then just be screaming and pounding on his door and waking the neighbors. Like, clearly that wasn't a respectful move and she wasn't respecting his decision to separate. And like, he did say some really terrible things and he was victim blaming her. So I'm not calling Biagio a hero by any means, 
but it's just like literally not a single character is perfect. Like really every single character does some pretty terrible things, but we forgive some and we don't forgive others. And I think that really varies from viewer to viewer. Like I think everyone watches it and comes away with a different opinion on each character. It's just, I don't know. I just, when I watched this, I saw myself a lot in it and it's, I don't know. I just, I have no words. It's just so amazing how she was able to like touch all of these different experiences in a way that was really honest and like true to how a lot of people have probably experienced, unfortunately have probably experienced sexual assault without even knowing. And it is just so great that she has shed light on all these like very complex issues and really what it is in what it's like in real life where you have to unfortunately like work with your assaulter or something along those like or your abuser and it's just i don't know when i watched it, it was just so beautiful to see all these different like experiences coming together in one show that was only like 26 minutes long per episode The last episode is absolutely wild in that it shows us three alternate endings, almost using like magical realism um, to show how she ends up dealing with her rapist, David. Um, and it's it's wild. The, <laughs> the first one is she goes to the bar, finds him, sees him. While she's out there with Terry, she makes a habit of going every weekend, and she finally sees him, and then she calls Theo. They inject him with his own um, roofie or whatever he um, spiked the drinks with, and then he passes out. She kills him and stuffs him under her bed. The second one, he cries and is almost talking to himself while he's talking to her, in the bathroom stall um and they end up going back to her house he talks about his past and how he was a serial rapist and has been in prison and then as the police are coming to get him she hugs him and he's crying in her arms and then the last one is i can't even like my brain cannot like fathom this ending or any of them she's just a genius but basically the roles are reversed um gender-wise. Um, everything's turned on its head. Um, she finds him in the bar. They end up just making out in the stall, and then they go back to her place and have sex, but she is the dominant one. She's on top. They also use nudity for the first time um, in the show, which I think is very notable. Um, so what do you guys think about these three endings? I think there's just so much to unpack here. Um, at the end, we have no idea which one happened, if any of them happened, um, what they all mean. So what do we think? I mean, it was like probably the most uncomfortable I've ever felt watching a piece of media. And I think she did it so intentionally. Um, and this is opening a whole new can of worms. But just the fact that the episode is called Ego Death and the club in which all of all three endings take place in, the club is called Ego Death. I think she's really messing around with the idea of viewing the situation objectively out of her own body, out of her own experience. Mm -hmm. So whether or not 
any of these three scenarios happened. I doubt any of them did. I think it was probably a representation of her imagining how she'd deal with it um, or what his reality could be. And in the death of her ego as the victim and someone who has been deeply, deeply traumatized by his horrific actions, she was able to take a step back from that and see maybe David was assaulted as a child, which we see in the second alternate ending where he's talking about his own um, assault as a child. Um, we see him crying in her arms and we feel empathy toward him and him begging for help and apologizing. And then even in the last ending, we see him as like a romantic love interest who is very likable. And it's just kind of so uncomfortable for us to have any empathy for someone who could have commit such a horrific crime. And for Michaela Cole to be able to write this and then reenact it as someone who has been raped, my brain cannot even, I cannot even comprehend how we're supposed to feel about these characters in the situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think also the, different endings, like you said, are kind of like, um, at least in my experience, I related a lot to them in that it's kind of like a victim kind of replaying what happened and seeing all the different sides and all the different ways it could have gone down. And also it kind of shows the, I can't think of the right word, but I guess the road to healing, the healing process of like seeing what happened all sides of it, everything that could have happened, everything that you don't want to see. Like, personally, when I saw the first ending where he was literally murdered by Arabella and Theo and Terry, I felt so uncomfortable. I wanted to feel catharsis from it because he got something um, as a consequence, but I didn't feel good about it. I didn't feel like this is great. And like all the other the other two ones as well, I didn't feel any satisfaction. I feel like that's something that's part of healing. You know, healing doesn't always mean that you feel amazing every step of the way. It's painful and it's really confronting those kinds of demons, those issues, those things that you really don't want to talk about or like relive or um, kind of face. And I think that's just so interesting to finally see something like that because I feel like a lot of media portrays a healing journey as very like calm and like meditative when it really is very tumultuous and hard for a lot of people and these endings i feel like really exemplify that in a really nuanced way tumultuous look at that buzzword you threw yep look at me tumultuous <laughs> and she explores that um through that episode in particular about social media it's halloween and she's, like, addicted to her social media because after the Zane expose, um, she's kind of, like, an influencer almost. But um, people come to her with their trauma and she is looked to as, like, a hero or, like, a defender of all of them. And it gets to be too much for her. So when she goes to therapy, that kind of, I think, starts just her confrontation of um, yeah. everything that, like, the metaphor is that she's stuffed under her bed, which, so she, like put all her investigation bags under her bed. She found, as we talked about before, um, her, like, the evidence of her abortion that had happened that she completely forgot about. 
Um, so she tends to just stuff everything under the bed and her therapist draws like a diagram with like an A, a line that represents like where she stuffs everything under and then an X underneath. And then Arabella wants to put them all together. So she draws them like all on top of each other. And I had noticed that that's actually the cover of her book at the very end, which is so interesting. Um, but yeah, it's really just confronting everything that she's stuffed under there. And w at the end, when David leaves, she, he says, I'm not going to leave unless you tell me to, which is like from her mind um, is what it represents. And so she says, leave. And he does. And the one that she killed, who was still under her bed, leaves as well. Um, and then it shows again outside her with um, her roommate, Ben. And she says she's not going to go to the bar. So she's finally kind of accepted that she has to move on with her life um, and that she can't um, push everything down any longer. But that does come at almost a cost because as she describes to, J to Zane as well, um, he the darkness is now inside her. So there's a lot. Um, there's a lot to it. But again, just her mind. I, I can just like rave about Michaela Cole all day long. It's also like after we see that third and final ending and we see the many versions of David um, leave from under her bed and walk out, she's finally able to move on from it. And will she ever be able to fully move on? Of course not. But she's able to stop sitting outside that club and waiting for him to return. She's able to find some sort of strength to move forward. And I think we see that when she, you know, is sitting outside with her wholesome roommate, Ben, and she can finally hear the bird and be like, oh, yeah, that bird is loud. You know, like she's finally present in in the moment with Ben and can appreciate the little things in life and is grateful for life. And I think that just shows like her growth and her progress where like when she was addicted to social media as a coping mechanism, her brain was kind of scattered always in the clouds. And she was, you know, trying not to think about the past, but then was super obsessed with thinking about the future and everything that was going on. And she was rarely just in her body able to enjoy the simplicities of life. And I think when she could finally she finally had this ego death and could somewhat move on and let it go is when she finally could hear the birds, you know? Um, and in the first and second ending, she kind of touches upon that because um, with Terry in the first one, she's like, uh, I have a plan. And Terry's like, you have a plan? And she's like, of course I have a plan. Why do you think we've been sitting here all these weeks? And Terry's like, I thought you were just mentally ill. But then in the second ending, she doesn't have a plan. And Terry's like, you don't have a plan. Why were we sitting here all these weeks? And she's like, I'm deranged. Like, I thought you knew this. So it's just like, I thought that, that um, those lines were quite interesting. And I hadn't noticed them um, until like third watch. I wanted to add um, to the social media aspect of the conversation. It's a little late, but... Um, that specific episode was, I don't know, I saw a lot of similarities um, with obviously real life as the show does very beautifully. Um, with that, a lot of people who choose to like speak out um, against, or not against, speak out about like what happened to them and against their 
assaulter or abuser are often painted as this hero and then people uh, the state of social media people like trauma them onto them and that kind of turns them into not necessarily a martyr but like this kind of statue of strength and their trauma becomes them as a person and how people see them and it's i just love the way that um Michaela like goes about illustrating that and how over time throughout the rest of the episodes we see her shedding that as you mentioned maddie like her finally letting go of this event that really defined her for so long or at least that she felt it defined her and she just tried to push it down and like like you said pushing it down just leaves it there in the dark and she was able to finally let it go in these really interesting alternate endings and i just think that was just so that line of like progression was just so interesting and refreshing to watch she doesn't like explicitly use the phrase but i think a lot of the social media exploration she does is in direct conversation with cancel culture. Um, I think she shows some of the benefits to cancel culture, how it helps a lot of people heal, heal and find support um, and, and find validation, which they might not be getting in their personal lives. Um, and it holds people accountable. But then she also shows, you know, the shortcomings and she shows these nuanced characters like we've talked about, which then makes you feel you know, guilty for canceling them or ruining their life or whatever, you know, it's, it's complicated. But um, I had something to say and I totally lost it. Um, oh, I wanna talk about the Promising Young Woman thing. Okay. I think this show handles the cancel culture theme differently because um, as we've already said, this show shows sexual assault in a nuanced way that other films and shows haven't, but, um, just because Promising Young Woman came out this year and received a lot of buzz um, for how it portrayed um, sexual assault and rape. I just think it's very interesting to discuss how Michaela Cole rejects the notion of canceling someone after they do one thing, or maybe she doesn't reject it. She challenges us to think more deeply about it. Whereas in Promising Young Woman, Bo Burnham, well, Ryan, played by Bo Burnham, um, is the perfect human, the perfect boyfriend. He betrays her and then he's evil. There's no nuance there. He's not really a real human being there. Whereas in I May Destroy You, these characters make bad choices and then make good choices and then they make another bad choice and then they redeem themselves again. And that's more how life works and how humans work. Can I transition and just say... Can we talk about Ben, her sweet roommate? He is so wholesome. Their relationship is so sweet. They just watch like science animation videos together. And he he's so like, he's just such a great stable presence in her life. Like even that first night when she has a cut, like he like cleans it up and gives her a bandaid. And he's just like, I love that man. It's also cute because of just how different they are. Like how did they end up as friends is what I want to know because Everyone else in the show is like um, extremely into like drugs and alcohol and partying through all hours of the night. And then Ben is like maintaining his garden outside and listening to the birds. Like, how did they befriend each other? But it works. They balance each other out. And when they're like, good night, mate, it's just so cute. Like, just their relationship. 
And, like, anytime they interact, my heart just swells. Like, I'm so grateful for Ben. The accents are everything. Thank you, Maddie, for um, <laughs> for us. I love how they say tings, you know? Tings. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. And they're like, I forgot what it was, but they were like, potty tings or something. I just love it. It sounds so, I love the way they say it. Like, it sounds so stupid in an American accent, like tings. No, all of me trying to do it is probably just like offensive. But even the like, the, <laughs> death is my death, like, bruv. <laughs> like, bruv. <laughs> no, no. Oh, bruv. and the fact that they call each other Bay all the time is bae. so cute. Oh, oh yes. It sounds horrible bae, bae. in an American accent. If, if I called like either one of you Bay, I would. No. <laughs> but in the way they say it to each other and like, your death is my death, so sweet. Mm. I don't know. Oh, whoa! Whoa, wait! Whoa! <laughs> we need to acknowledge what the wonderful Jill Kwok just chatted as we were speaking. <laughs> Ego death and your death is my death, which is the saying Terry and Arabella say to each other. What is this idea of death and loyalty and seeing from other people's perspectives? What? and birth and the constant motif of water and baptism but also destruction and death and drowning oh my goodness that's the sound of my mind exploding literally there's so much more to unveil with this show like we've all seen it multiple times and we're still discovering new things about it which is just so incredible like how do you create something so layered yet so it just put it just gives it to you you know what i mean like it's just it's wonderful oh god thank you all so much for listening and now we have take five where we recommend five pieces of media that pertain to the topic of each episode so first we are going to recommend the british gq youtube video michaela cole reacts to i may destroy you scene and in this she provides insight on her process and what's going on in within Arabella in a specific scene in episode 8 and it's really informative and thought-provoking. Up next we have Dirty Computer by Janelle Monet and a lot of the songs in her discography in general are used in the soundtrack to I May Destroy You but this album in particular is absolutely masterful and definitely should give it a listen if you guys can. Next, we have the New York Times article that we've mentioned a few times. That is an interview with the music supervisor of I May Destroy You, Kira Elwes. It is entitled How I May Destroy You Got Its Stunning Soundtrack. And it's really fascinating to read about um, how these songs were curated for the show. So next up, since Amelamine plays Simon in I May Destroy You, I am recommending The Maze Runner, but not really. Amel Amin plays Albie in the Maze Runner movie. Um, But really, this is just a plug for me to tell the story about how I was a pretty popular Maze Runner um, Twitter account. I wouldn't call myself an influencer, but um, I also would. So (laughs) basically, Amel Amin did wish me a happy birthday. He said, we are both July babies, which I thought meant we were connected in some special way. Now I realize we just were born in the same month. Um, 
But yes, maybe recommend the books, not so much the movie. It was just some self-promotion. Maybe that Twitter account is still out there. It's probably like Natalie the Glader or something. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, yeah. Moving on to the next more important take five. No, I think I think that story is very important for everyone to know, Natalie. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Our next recommendation is Chewing Gum, another show that Michaela Cole wrote and also starred in. Um, and it's also really good. It's from the mind of Michaela Cole, so we can't really complain. <laughs> all right, so that is all for take five and for this entire episode. And if any of you guys have any questions, comments, concerns, want to start a... Oh my god, my dog started barking. Can you guys hear him? Okay, good. Okay, that is it for today's episode. If you guys have any questions, comments, or want to start a convo about I May Destroy You or anything else, shoot us a DM on Instagram at oddpodsout. So that's really it. Thank you guys for listening and see y'all soon. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Jillian, the producer of Reeling, and I just wanted to say that the show wouldn't be possible without our graphic designer, Isa, our music designer, Maddie, our social media manager, Madison, and listeners like you. If you have any suggestions for topics to be covered in future episodes or any comments, questions, or concerns, please email podcast.grainofsaltmag at gmail.com. And for more fun, head to at oddpodsout on Instagram. Thanks again.